This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Boendik and Pangarang people. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded, and that modern Australia has never come to terms with what was done following European arrival. Well may we say, God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor-General. You know I've searched my heart to prove There's better ways to push and pull Hey, whatever gets you through these days Hello and welcome to Well May We Say, a progressive podcast about Australian politics. This is episode 140 for Saturday 14th of November 2020. I'm Jeremy Siapico and I'm joined each week by a different guest host to help me discuss what's just been happening to the country, what's likely to happen and hopefully what we can do about it. Tonight's guest host is returning guest host Eliza Balazs. Welcome back Eliza! Always a joy to join you Jeremy. You're on the other side of the border and everything's opening up. How, how, how are things in sort of the South Australian way as as the restrictions and now Western Australia, the border with Australia is opening as well. Yeah, I guess life's been pretty normal here in South Australia, bar that you can't stand up and drink in a bar, which annoys a lot of people. <laughs> um, so is that now, a COVID thing or just a weird South no, Australia thing? No, it's a COVID thing. <laughs> it's a COVID thing. They do have weird drink sizes over here. Um, uh, but yes, and now we have many more vacation destinations we can travel to within Australia. But otherwise, I mean, we've been... Pretty, pretty normal over here. Um, no masks, no, you know, area restrictions. Although you guys don't have that kilometre thing now, anyway, either. No, we we actually have friends coming up from Melbourne today because they're they're like the entire city of Melbourne is now fleeing, and they're like, you know, even if we don't want to go to the country, we just want to get the hell out of the city for five minutes. It does feel like this week there was just this collective exhale as a few things shifted. I mean, the world's problems weren't resolved, but. Oh no! Everywhere overseas is completely effed at the moment. They—they're just <laughs> the, the cases in the US, Canada, the UK, um, everywhere. Like Sweden's been like, oh yeah, that thing where we were just going to go for herd immunity. Okay, we, we, we might have we might have miscalculated on that one. But it's just out of control. And, and all the people who have been like, oh, it's not that much worse than a flu, is it? Well, it's pretty bad when it because it's so infectious when it shuts your entire health system down. And you can't, you know, operations for other things have to stop. The hospitals are overwhelmed. Like, this is it what really we were trying to avoid. Grinds society to a halt. But um, yes. Tim Smith well, hasn't apologised to Dan. <laughs> I don't think he's ever going to apologise to Dan. Anyway, but but now we're all opening up, so that's lovely. And and so the Wangrad will now be filled with with filthy Melburnians who who will be allowed to actually go, <laughs> go to, to pubs and stuff. Like previously, whenever you went to a a restaurant, they were like you had to give you a proof that you weren't weren't a filthy Melburnian. And <laughs> we changed our driver's licenses very quickly so that we weren't filthy Melburnians because we would be judged very harshly for being filthy Melburnians. Yes, yeah, so I'm I'm changing my um number plates within the next few weeks so I won't be judged <laughs> as being a filthy Victorian. So <laughs> I don't think the border to New South Wales has, has lifted yet though. With Victoria? Yeah. No, not until the 23rd. Yeah, so we've got it. So it's still the uh, painful process of like the, the, the crossing at albury where you come off near wodonga and it's just sort of oh, very slow. slow apparently that's a nightmare at, at, in, there must at, be queues yeah pretty you know we just went on a saturday but uh people coming back so if you live in albury and you work in say wodonga the queue coming back in the night was apparently just a nightmare 
Oh, coming back. There you go. Well, because you're coming back at peak hour. I know people have often referred to Victorians as Mexicans, which is incredibly racist and reductive. But with the way that New South Wales Victorian border closure must be at Albury Wodonga, it must feel a bit like the Mexico-US border crossing during the height of it. Well, I think it's ironic New South Welshmen calling Victorians Mexicans too, when like the and then the Queenslanders call them Mexicans. It's just <laughs> such a, like anyway. I think the state border thing was a silly idea. Australia as a country needs to be able to you need to be able to zone off quarantine and quarantine areas. That's certainly, of course, you do. But state borders are a terrible way of doing that because the state borders are right through so many towns. Like, there are so so many cross-border communities. It's almost it's, as if borders are a man-made construct. Yes. But, yeah, that's what we found is um, – so I guess one of the things in South Australia that we've been suffering with, um, not that we've had much to complain about, has been our border closures as well. Um, so the town I live in, Panola, is um, about 15 kilometres from the border. Um, but there are other towns um, as well that are far closer to the border that have always – played sport with and shopped and had families on either side of the border. And they've just been dreadfully isolated. Um, Their economic situation's been really suffering. And um, finally, we've got news that the border will open fully on the 1st of December. But um, even our federal member, Tony Passon, did a talk recently with them and said, I'm going to ask for psychological support, you know, when there's a drought or a fire and we send out some help. I'm Mm. going to ask the government for that because you guys have had it really bad. What wasn't the story this week that, that um, Scammo was being asked to advise Biden on, on Australia's successful COVID approach? I don't think Scott Morrison's in a place to advise many people, but sure. Well, no. I mean, and I don't uh, think he'd let it. What's the hashtag? Hashtag Scotty didn't help or something. That's going, yeah, like, he, he had it happened no, in spite no of him. role in it, really. Well, he had the opposite. I mean, he, he was calling for Victoria to open up long yeah. before it did. Um, in fact, and they were objecting to... They were the hotel quarantine that they bl- like to blame Victoria for, for effing up on. Scummo didn't want to do that in the first place. Like it was only New South Wales and Victoria who pushed for it, in the f- and then then there were problems with it. But I mean, the Libs don't have any grounds to be, to complain about the uh, whether how effective it was or how comprehensive it was when they were opposed to it in the first place. Scummo was opposed to all these actions all the way through. Mm. So him do it. So it's this weird thing where. I feel like the COVID thing has shown us both the strengths and weaknesses of Federation. Like the border yeah. closures have shown us what a dumb arrangement it is doing that by state. It should be a federal thing and you, you zone off around the, the affected yeah, areas. Yeah, like the Melbourne Ring of Steel, not a state border closure, city yeah. and country border closures. You draw the borders through the bits that hardly have any people in them, not in the middle of communities. Yeah. Like the state borders is up and, and the whole point of Federation was so that you wouldn't do that you wouldn't be discriminating between people based on states although it yeah. turns out that that um that, that clive lost his his uh, high court uh, case on that yeah um, um, but yeah the idea was for yeah the state is so anyway state borders are a shitty way to do it but on the other hand we've seen the strengths of the federal system which is that the states were able to protect us all from the covid situation when the federal government wouldn't mm. so it's Sorry. like and they let the that, ruby who was the ruby princess who's who let the disease, mm. the typhoid Mary, ship in again? Mm. <laughs> but anyway. um, yeah, borders don't closing borders, at least state borders, don't save lives. It's tracking, testing, and uh, something else. But it's not closing borders. <laughs> anyway, let's not talk anymore about COVID. Let's let's talk about how the government thinks that COVID is now fine. Problems not, problem, not a problem anymore, and it can go back to starving the poor now because <laughs> the poor have been slightly less starved lately. And in fact, there was a period there which we're out of already where. 
there was social security that actually enabled you to survive. People were eating three meals a day instead of two. Yeah. Anyway, that ended already. Uh, and then this week, the, gov- the Scummo and uh, his minister then announced that they were going to further slash it. Now, they haven't said that they're going to go back to the $40 a day, but instead they're going back to $50 a day. Very generous. No. <laughs> no, it's not. No. My partner the other day said, do you want to know how much I got on Job Seeker?" And I said, no, I don't. It's depressing, isn't it? I found it very obnoxious the way the ABC was covering it, like it was a reprieve. Because it's not as bad as $40 a day, the bit where we're starving you at $50 a day is a reprieve. We may, you know, we, we may, maybe we'll leave it at 50 you know, the, the government's being very cagey about whether they're going to go back to the 40. Saying that's a reprieve is, again, it's like saying that we had a hike in um, unempl- uh, a hike in employment figures when it was only a couple of percentage points and it was basically all Uber gig economy stuff. You remember when we had that little spike? Saying it's a reprieve is like saying we're not going to uh, hang you, we're going to put you in the electric chair sure. instead. <laughs> it's like, no, it's just a slightly... Well, it's, okay, the analogy doesn't quite work. It's it's the I haven't thought of a good analogy, but <laughs> the point is, it's not enough. How can you live on fifty dollars a day? Yeah, you can't. It's it's a starvation rate, and all of the whenever they justify it, they say, well, we've been you know we've heard from from business people who've been unable to fill jobs. Have you? And what were the conditions like? Where are the specifics? Because they never have any specifics about this perfectly legitimate job. At a perfectly reasonable rate, that uh, you know that the these these job snobs were turning up their nose at, they never have an example of that. And I know our local federal MP was saying, "Oh, there's a thousand jobs that are not filled in my electorate." A, his oh, electorate's yeah. the size of Croatia, so that's not really fair. Of course, there's a thousand jobs in a massive electorate. And B, well, yeah. Did you know that also there is huge waiting list for housing in your electorate? So how are these people meant to move to these jobs? Yeah, like, and, and it's an excuse. Like, it really does bell the cat when when business lobby groups complain about the rate of of social security being at a rate that somebody could live on it. Mm. Uh, and in fact, what they're complaining about now is that because it's already at a level below what you can live on. Mm. Um, once they, as soon as they cut it back from from the original COVID amount, it was less than you could, you know, pay rent and have three meals a day and live on. But the fact that they were still complaining about it is, you know, bells the cat that the whole purpose of running down social security is to A, force people into shitty jobs and shitty conditions, and B, to threaten people who do have jobs that they better not try to get any better conditions or pay because the alternative, hey, it's starvation. You don't have you don't have an option where you can live. It, like, if there's social security, if there's a safety net, it's the choice is between just surviving and, you know, having, having a, a decent quality of life. And that should be what you get for working. But they want it to be that the choice is you take our shitty wages and conditions or you die. Pretty much. Pretty much. Although the Australian Industry Group have decided this week that maybe they should push for an increase to the rental supplement rather than increasing the base rate. I I just don't really know why you need to differentiate. I mean, people just need some more money to survive on. Why do we have to... I'm I'm trying to get my head around it. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. You would have thought that the business like the biggest cost for to the business lobby of what the government's doing by slashing social security is that people don't have money to spend. 
So it will suppress economic activity and suppress their profits and businesses that rely on people being able to spend a hand whenever they, they such these things. Because uh, more than you know, tax cuts take money out of the, the general revenue, but those generally get saved by, by the, the vast bulk of them go to rich people who don't need to spend them. Whereas everything you give to people on social security gets spent. So it seems bizarre to me that a an industry group would be preferring that some of that money get locked into rental subsidies rather than being able to be spent in the shops. Like surely it's in their commercial interest to have that money spent in the shops. It doesn't make any sense. It is. I think everyone's gone a little bit mad with, with the COVID pandemic. I mean Oh unless it makes perfect sense because you just hate the poor and you just want to you just want to kick the poor. I think well well their justification was it was that they rather that by putting it into a rental supplement rather than just free money, which we know it's not free money, that would help to make sure it didn't disincentivize people to get into work. Again, it's astonishing how how much how far they get with this claim that it disincentivizes work. I've never met anyone without any evidence. Who are these people who just want to? I, I don't know anyone who who is just ever not looking for work who's on on the on job seeker or whatever it used to be called you know i don't know any of these so-called people that just sit on the couch and don't want to get a job I, who are they are they like unicorns do they exist well there might there are probably some disabled people who are not looking heavily for work because they've uh, who are on job seeker because they should be getting the dsp but they yeah. the government's been farming them onto job seeker yeah and you know, look, there probably are people who've been trying for a long time and have just given up. Like, cause, like that's the other thing. Like, if you're continually trying for work and you're con- constantly being pushed back, and it's particularly when it's for stuff that you don't even have any control over, like you're being discriminated against for any of the factors that employers quite happily discriminate against people on. Mm. They're not allowed to, but they are because, of course, you, the hiring process is completely opaque. Like, surely there comes a point where you you should be entitled to go. Well, you know what? I'm not going to beat myself up for the rest of my life just to be punished every day because you guys don't want me. There probably are people who eventually go, screw it. Mm. But that's, that's not, not... The solution isn't to just punish them even further. I just... Oh, just the hatred of the poor. And they, and, and it feels like they're just held up as a an object lesson to people who do have jobs. And then the Business Council of Australia proposed to increase JobSeeker, but to between 75 and 90% of the age pension, which is still around half the minimum wage. It's like there's a reason why there's a minimum wage. that You can't yeah. live on less than that. Um, well, it should, it should be uh, – sorry, I mean, you're going to call me bullshit about this, but I would say that, that the way that that should be said is social security should be amount that you can survive on. You're not missing meals. You're not unable to get medication. You're not unable to have housing you can survive on it. It's not flash, but it's enough to survive on. That should be the so that's the that's a safety net. Mm. You're not going to you know get sick and die or be unable to retrain and rebuild and get back in. You're going to be able to survive at a level which is you know the base that you know DHS would expect somebody to be keeping their children at before they take them away. My favorite suggestion is from the Council of Small Business Organizations of Australia who who said we should increase the rate but actually we should also make sure we put more funding into Centrelink offices and other support around the country to help people find jobs and provide support. So rather than give the people who don't have jobs more money so they can survive, we should fund more of the services to help them find the jobs that don't exist. Yeah, if that makes sense. Like, that, this, whole, this whole job fetishism, 
as if there aren't way too many applicants for each job already. <laughs> like that is the balance isn't that we have too many jobs and not enough people who want to do them. That isn't that isn't where we are at all. And it's just dilute so disingenuous and deranged to be pretending that the, that the problem in the economy is that people can't can't find workers. You, the only people who can't find workers are people who are provide who are suggest, offering and, and want workers to do um, shitty backbreaking work for shitty wages, where where there are no services in situations where there's no you know there's not even accommodation. And yet the government has these you know rolling contracts with these job service providers who basically give people glorified Google searches to find jobs. Yeah. They're not... Uh, 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 Privatising the job seeker, the job agencies, rather than having a, putting a profit motive in the, doing the shitty busy work and, and whatever the KPIs are, just hitting those and then not giving a shit after that. Like, you can't... It's not a thing that works being privatised. It's been a complete failure. It should just go back to being the the, the CES. It should be a, the government um, making efforts to find. I mean, has privatisation ever made anything better in Australia? I'm trying to think of something. <laughs> no, no, because you're right. Literally, privatisation is taking something that the government was doing perfectly well, and and try get, letting the private market try and get squeeze a profit out of it. It's always a bad idea. The government's doing the stuff when there's a need for, like when there's a, a natural monopoly. It's always a shitty thing to privatise prisons. Job network, like aged care, every health. None of these things work. Schools. None of these things work better in the private sector. Anyway, I, I just, I'm just staggered that we are, we are again going to starve people on on fifty dollars a day. And look, there are plenty of things that we could be doing um, to, you know, that, that would would assist as well as the money. Um, you know, we need to be doing something about the the ludicrous housing market. Do you, you see all the, the coverage this week as if the housing market going up again was a good was good news? Yeah, I never understand why that's ever said as good news. Well, it's good news for people who own more than one house. If you yeah. own one house, it's not actually good news because, well, it's good news in the sense that the equity in your house grows, so your ability to borrow against it like yeah. you can borrow more money from a bank because you've got some security. So I it's guess. good news for people who already have relative financial security. Yeah, it's well if your if your house prices go up, actually you're probably paying more in rates. So it's probably not a plus if you've got one house. If you've got more than one house, obviously your investment is increasing in value. So fine. And I like that you keep calling it more than one house because yes, you can't own more than one house and you can't call them homes because they're not. You're not treating them as homes. You're treating them as assets in your investment portfolio. Yeah. I keep getting emails. So at some point when we were renting from uh, – one of the houses we rented in Melbourne was actually not through a real estate agent. It was through – it turned out it was through some kind of investment mob that did do some sort of real estate-y management of properties for for people who were investing, but basically they were a property investment group. And as a result of being renters there, we keep getting these sort of infuriating emails from them, which are aimed at people who are going to invest in the property market. And it's all this stuff about how you should you need to have a positive mindset about investment and how you can make make it big investment. And all you just you, you just got to go with go with them, put more money, you know, save and put your money in, and it can be done. And it's all this ludicrously unrealistic stuff, except for the except for the point, which is that they are relentlessly optimistic about the future for property investment in Australia, and. They talk about it being like that, you know, that there's just 
I don't know. They've got they've got some excuse for it for that being um, a, a perfectly justified thing, rather than being what it really is, which is, yeah, we just have two parties, two big parties, who will do whatever they can to help the people who've got all the investment properties. Mm. So, so it's, it's not, not so, so much, much that, that house investment is in, is innately secure. It's more that we have political parties that will not do anything to piss off all the people who've got the real estate, mm. and so they will sacrifice all the rest of us to pander to those people. So, yeah, you are pretty safe to invest in real estate because the two big parties are always going to do your bidding. Yeah. Unless there's a real sea change, which is hopefully what we can, you know. They, we, Eliza, we're doing a podcast. Yes. We're on our way. We're getting there. That's it. Bit by bit. We're calling Seize bullshit the power on it. By seizing the microphone. Exactly. This is how change happens. Not, not through. <laughs> oh, also board games. Did you. I, Sorry, this has got nothing to do. I want to get onto the, the, the Four Corners scandal and, and there's a segue, obviously, from the starving the poor through to that because there's obviously the Anne Ruston Scummo press conference and that's the segue <laughs> between the three. So we'll get there in a sec. But we found it, uh, the board game thing, just while we're talking about propaganda and, and, and how the right pushes this shit. Have you ever heard of a group called Enterprise Australia? No, but that name sounds quite sinister to me somehow. Yeah, it sounds like a, a proto-IPA. It sounds like <laughs> a, a far-right pro-business lobby because that's who they were. Have you ever heard of a game called Pol Economy? No. Okay, so Pol Economy is this sort of shitty 80s, like late 70s, 80s sort of Monopoly-like board game, which is it calls itself The Game of Australia. Denise found a copy at, a, at an op shop in Beechworth for five bucks. We sort of picked it up because I was, I was vaguely curious about it. And it's this, oh, it's very 80s, like all the, all the companies in it, which apparently in, in, I'm not sure if the Australian version, but apparently in the Canadian version and other versions, they, actually, they literally sold to these companies spots on the game board by way of advertising. It's the most capitalist game you can imagine. That's amazing. And, and so it's got all these 80s companies, you know, there's a telecoms in there, but Actually, you know what? Pause a second. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pull it out because I, I want to read I want to read you what it thinks. <laughs> All right. So this is the this is the thing. It's a giant like 80s sort of coffin sized box thing. <laughs> it calls itself the Game of Australia. The Game of um, Australia. Isn't the Game of Australia cultural genocide and um, racism, systemic racism? Well, the real one is, but that's not this board game. <laughs> and so, oh yeah, so. It, what, Union Carbide, which apparently owned Glad and Everready. I didn't know that. Telecom Australia. TAA? I don't know if you, would you have, do you know what, does TAA ring any bells? No. <laughs> Is oh, that well, a precursor to ANSET or something? Uh, no, it was a competitor to ANSET. It became, <laughs> so we had, there was, uh, when I grew up, we had TAA, which was Trans Australia Airlines and ANSET. And then TAA became Australian Airlines. And then they all disappeared and we ended up with... Virgin came from nowhere and Qantas took over. I'm not sure which bit. I can't remember which bit. Uh, anyway, no. When I was very little, TIA was what it was an airline. People, uh, people trust Holden, Singapore Airlines. Uh, this uh, streets with the paddle pop lion. Does that ring any bells? Oh, adorable! And he's in a safari suit. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Telecom Australia one is business communications. Go Telex. Telecom Australia. That's amazing. Wow, did we have a national telecommunications? This is when you, all the Vulcan heaters that are in the in the you know, rental properties. I don't think Vulcan oh, yes. still exists, but anyway, that's when they were. Kodak, Kodak Australasia. Anyway, so all these companies, but the the premise of it is that you're both tycoons and politicians, and so if when you become prime minister, uh, I think this will explain. Uh, why this thing was being prompted, pr- promoted by Enterprise Australia. To the extent that Enterprise Australia, which is this sort of this astroturf group that came up after Whitlam uh, to try and, and switch people's attitudes about uh, unions and taxation and stuff. And 
according to Wikipedia or somebody, anyway, apparently by, by the end of the 80s, they'd managed to flip Australia's positive attitudes to unions towards negative attitudes to unions, um, more, more, more opposed to them, and also pro-tax cuts instead of public services. They'd managed to... The, the wow. business lobby campaigns at the end of the 70s had managed to switch people's So they're up. one of my new favourite things to hate. Yeah, no, so I don't think Enterprise Australia exists anymore. Although, like, it's watermarked all over the... The results of their work sure still exist, unfortunately. Yeah. And look, while we're going on this tangent, this is, this is the... Um, so the, the point of it was that every, like Monopoly, everybody's trying to buy things, and they, but they, the Prime Minister gets to pick which... Are, there's a sort of a, a thing in the middle where inflation or whatever is either going up or down and things are making more or less money, <clears> and the Prime Minister gets to pick which direction that goes in. But the, the election is, just to demonstrate that they're contemporary, the election is literally rolling dice. Like somebody rolls, <laughs> each person rolls dice and that's how many votes they've got, basically. Um, and then they can sort of form a, a coalition together to have a majority. But it's not like up to anything they've done, whether or not they've helped people or not. It's just... <laughs> Who gives a shit what the people want? But yeah, these, these, I love this. This is the pressures on the Prime Minister. Instead of being under pressure to do something to improve people's lives, the Prime Minister is under pressure from three sources. One, the economy, but that means whether or not he's making the rich players rich. <laughs> Two, the treasury, that means whether or not he's managed to cut, and it's all, it's definitely a he, whether or not he's managed to, basically the treasury's not doing anything for the public. And three, the Prime Minister is as a tycoon, whether or not the Prime Minister has managed to personally enrich himself. These are the three aims when you are the Prime Minister, according to the game promoted by the... Yeah. Fuck, this sounds like too real. Anyway, I'm not sure what the relevance of all that was. I, I was just amused by it because I just just found out about the... Uh, well, this, I think oh, it in, went down in, a really interesting history lane as to one of the reasons as to how did we get here. <laughs> look, lobbying people... So what I'm saying is clearly we on the left... In this, we need to make a board game, don't we? In this board game renaissance, we need to be making board games. That can I promote... designed a board game a while ago um, that I really want to do, but it was meant to be like a game of lifestyle board game. And the idea was to try to help people to empathise and understand just how uncertain and anxiety-laden being on Job Seeker is. And it was basically... You're a job seeker person and each time you roll the dice and move around the board, things can happen and your payments get cut or you don't, or you ha- miss your job meeting and then they cut your payments because you had to go to a funeral, so that's why you missed it. So it was meant to sort of show the precarious nature of being a job seeker. Anyway, I didn't get to finish it, but I think I should. I think more people need to get it. <laughs> I think it's harder to sell those now too because in the 80s, roll and move was like all board games were. So nowadays you would need to have some mechanisms to involve people rather than just sort of rolling dice and moving just yeah. and just random stuff happening to you. People wouldn't play it. It would be you've got to. It's it's a hard it's a harder market now. It, they they can still do political things like when the US election happened. We played we're playing a bit of a game called Mapmaker. I don't know if I've did I ever show you Mapmaker. Mm, I don't think so. So Mapmaker was a, a game that was designed by sort of some teenagers, a family in in uh, Texas, Austin, Texas, I think where they were in one of these highly gerrymandered districts. Like, you know, the ones in America where it's like, you know, literally like the bulk is there and then there's this long, stupid line across to try and grab in or grab, exclude some voters to just make sure that... You know how gerrymandering works. Right. Anyway, um, they designed this game called Mapmaker, which basically looks like a Settlers of Catan borders, like a bit of hexes. Mm. And then depending on how many part players are playing, there'll be um, a series of little discs that go out Everybody has the same number of votes, but they're in different concentrations. So, like, you know, there'll be one over here, but then there might be a 10 over there or in a different hex. And so each – the board is basically randomly spread out with the, the 
uh, little votes for all of the parties uh, <laughs> playing the game. What you're doing on your turn is you've got four little black sticks that basically mm. form a little border between one of the lines on the hexes, and you put down four of those on each turn, and you're trying to close off areas, at least four hexes or, or, or bigger, um, that can't be subdivided, but you're trying to maximise the number. You've all got the same number of votes, mm. but uh, you're trying to close them off in ways where you end up having more actual seats that you win because you've drawn the boundaries in such a way. So basically you want to compress all of your opponent's voters into like one election, you know, as few electors <laughs> as possible. So they win their electors by way too many. And then you just scrape over the line in the remaining ones. So you get more, even though you've all got the same votes. And it makes the point, like it shows you how to gerrymander. It's actually, it's both, it's kind of diabolical in that sense. But anyway, they, they launched it. It was a Kickstarter, but they, but the point of it was to actually campaign against gerrymandering in the US. And they sent it to, you know, hit certain Kickstarter levels and it went to uh, all the governors in the end, it went to all the Supreme Court. It went to, it was basically a lobbying group and a lobbying effort. Mm. Whilst also being quite a good day. Yeah. Uh, I think I sent it to Arnie and Arnie was, you know, shot, shot of him and his family playing it and keenly pushing the anti-gerrymandering thing. So you can, you can do games that actually, you can still do things that make a political point. So I think it's hopeful. I, I don't, I'm not suggesting that the main way that we on the left can, can fight back is through board games. Mm. But I am suggesting that, you know, the main way we on the left can fight back is through board games. Why don't we just all make good board <laughs> games? <sighs> $50 a day. That's just... No, and nobody at the press conferences when they announced it mm. said that to him. Like, it should have been the ongoing question. How, Prime Minister, is anyone supposed to survive on $50 a day? And then he would, if they did do it, he would then fudge it. He would say, no, we're not saying that. We're saying that, you know, the best form of welfare is a job. And you're like, yes, but the social safety net is there for people who can't find work. People who can't find work are going to be required living on the payment. How can they live on $50 a day? They just keep hammering that point. Mm. Like, imagine if we had an actually, actually engaged press gallery who gave a shit about the people who are affected by these decisions who would actually push them on it. Mm. Yeah, there there often are people having a seat at the table can be, you know, so important. And as we know, um, you know, the media sector, it's just that so many people often don't have a really diverse experience. You know, a lot of people did come from good backgrounds. And so how can you even begin to, to know? Why are you at a press conference about cutting social security if you've got no empathy for the Like how, if you haven't figured out that there are two sides on this. There's the government wanting to keep money in the in the you know cash reserves so they can give tax cuts for the rich. And then of course there's the question of what your employer is asking you to do. You know, possibly if you work for News Corp, there might be a particular angle that your employer is chasing. So that might be irrelevant for you to have any empathy for the poor if your employer or the agenda of your paper doesn't want to share that type of perspective with their readers. Okay. Well then I guess the question is do we know of any journos who would be willing and who care enough, who would be concerned about the, the impact, who are not being directly controlled by the media organisation that, that well, employs them? Well, there's great them. ones like um, Rick Morton, of course, who did actually have a hard time growing up and he's done some great stuff on social affairs. Luke Hermes Gomez, his family, I think they moved here um uh, where did they come from? I can't remember. But anyway, he, he, his family's had some difficult times as well. Yeah, there's some really great writers around. But yeah, I, you know, it's, it's annoying that I'm having to name individuals. Well, because my, my question is, who in, the pre, who in the press gallery in Canberra, who, in the, who, actually, who has clearance to go to those prime ministerial press conferences, who is, the, who is the closest we've got to a person who will say, 
how are you living on $50 a day? And then let alone asking it once, but then um, ideally following up when he just fudges it, push the point. Because it's, it's the, it is the crux of the decision that people are going to be kicked back to, to starve on $50 a day, to miss meals, to not be able to get, go to the doctor, who will be gradually ground backwards and backwards, further and further until they die in poverty. Like, that, there's a real consequence to the decision. Mm. I mean, you were in the press gallery in Canberra for a while. Like, who do you know who's, who's like, is there anyone and what do we need to get to a position where journos actually, like, is it that they don't, know to do that is it that they don't care to do that is it that they fear reaper and then there's also that a lot of the ministers are just so annoyingly good at just fobbing you off and moving on i mean dare i segue into the Anne rustin stuff but yeah it's not uncommon for prime ministers and ministers to just redirect or shut things down or yeah not that I that's. If you I suppose if you don't, you need the you need your colleagues to then follow it up. That's right. That's that's where the magic happens. Is when rather than everyone chasing their particular angle and agenda, if they work collectively to push a particular point and just say, no, this is what the press conference is about now, and we're going to keep asking you about it until you answer. That's when the magic happens. But instead, yeah, a lot of you people... don't you don't need all of them either. Like you can you can give up on the on the you know the news corp ones or whatever. You could do it with two or three. Mm. But I mean, how many do we have there who are like I would? The first question is like, why isn't even one of them asking that? Oh, they are. I, I mean, you, you're probably not watching their. Are you watching their press conferences? They probably maybe, are. Maybe I'm missing the start bit. Maybe, maybe I missed the question. Did yeah. some? Did anybody at this? So let, let's get onto the Anne Rustin. So the, mm. the, the bit, the the bit that segues into the scummo mansplaining, and then that segues to the Four Corners stuff, was was the, the press conference where Anne Rustin was announcing that they were going to do this. Scummo was next to her, and so before it got to them trying to go back onto the Four Corners stuff. Did you watch the whole? Because I didn't see the whole thing. I only saw parts of it. Did the four the corners, thing? Doco. No, the the whole of the the um, Anne Raston. Yeah, no, um, I just saw the the bit that went viral. Oh, okay. So I didn't see it from the start either. So I don't. It didn't feel like anyone. Had, and if anybody did ask them on it, it didn't. They nobody followed up on it. It certainly didn't go anywhere. Um, I haven't seen a transcript of the interview, but it feels like. If, it just feels like everyone there should have been able able to see that that was the consequence and be asking mm. what, you know, not plenty of their readers will be affected. Plenty of the, the, the audience for these media outlets will be affected by cutting it back to $50 a day. Plenty of people, both both directly, both uh, in terms of that they will literally be being pushed back. They're, they're people, people who are in this situation are still consuming this media. So, like, their audience is also consuming. But also family members of those people who will be affected. Um, and businesses who are, like, this This is going to affect more than just the people who they're starving. It will affect, you know, the economy. It'll affect businesses around, on which, you know, where, the, where that money is currently going. Like... If you, that's the thing, isn't it? Like the government doesn't like to pick winners. They're like, we don't, you know, we, the right wing rhetoric is that we don't want to be putting money out there because it just gets wasted and it doesn't go, it's not spent efficiently. Well, if you want to make sure that money is spent efficiently, give it to the poor who will spend it on what they need. Like the most efficient way of distributing that money through the economy to services, to, you know, businesses that are providing services. Anyway. Um, um. So do you, so do you want to do you, do you want to pick up and run with what what then what then happened because it sounds like they weren't so so much interested in in the impact on people of this fairly drastic cut and it is a cut it's not a reprieve ABC mm. no they were more interested in the four corners stuff so I, we're going to do it backwards we're going to do the Anne Rustin and the Scummo stuff as a segue and then we go back to the four corners stuff that was 
that, that, that led into it. But do you, do you want to describe what happened? Because I don't want to, for, for obvious reasons. I, I, I do not want to be the one who's describing it. The documentary or the press conference? I don't want to be the man explaining the, the man's interrupting. Planning. Yes, so um, basically, so this press conference that was talking about starving the poor, at one point in it, um, a journalist asked Anne Rustin, a Liberal woman, about, you know, what Parliament has been like for a woman and, and whether, you know, the treatment's okay. Is there a good culture of respect for women? And... Miss Rustin, can I ask you, as, as a woman in, in the government, uh, your reflections on, on the culture inside? Has it got better, worse or no change since the, the bonk ban era? Well, Phil, the only thing that I can... How this ban is referred to I think is quite dismissive of the seriousness of the issue, Phil. Um, and I would ask media to stop referring to it in that way. We took it very seriously. And I think constantly referring to it in that way dismisses the seriousness of this issue. It's a very serious issue. Thanks, Anne. Yes, so the culture of respect for women is alive and well when um, a man answers the question directed at a woman before letting her answer it. Can't get better than that. Like, this shit, you... You couldn't write it. You couldn't write it. <laughs> you couldn't make it up. Isn't that twenty twenty though? Like every, everything from the Four Seasons landscaping through to this. Like whoever whoever is writing twenty twenty. No, no, I'm not going. You know, twenty twenty is a TV series thing that's been done to death. But yeah, you you couldn't script this crap. Yeah, it's um, and it just it just shows. Oh God, the Prime Minister. He just Scott Morrison. He's just read the room. Just consistently not reading the room. Just, you know, whether it's jetting off to Hawaii in the middle of horrendous bushfires or interrupting a woman about a question about whether or not women are respected in Parliament. It feels like his whole angle there, where he thought he was coming from too, is this very patronising, almost because how he comes in is defending, like objecting to the the language that's being used. It just sounded like when someone gets called a racist and they're like, oh, but let me explain why I'm not a racist. He's like, let me explain why there's not a culture of misogyny by being misogynistic. I don't want to demean. I mean, I think you guys need to stop using the the uh, the, the term bonk man that uh, I, I find offended. I'm, I'm offended on behalf of the ladies. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I do like him demanding that, that the term stop being used, like like he has the power to stop everybody using what we're 100% going to keep calling it. <laughs> like, there is no way that's changing. It's such a weird thing to and interrupt. And it's such an Australian thing. Like, and as someone said, someone was saying, oh, yeah, it is a bit disrespectful because some of these women, you know, get into these relationships and while they might begin consensually, they are, you know, there is a, um, a concerning power dynamic um, and, you know, there obviously is, you know, a bit of, who knows, maybe a bit of drinking and uh, intimidating things happening in Parliament House. But Well, that's what the Four Corners thing, isn't it? So, let, well, let's get on to that. You know what? I... But that's the thing with the bonk ban is calling it the bonk ban, it's not trying to undermine or undervalue the experience of these of these women it's just australians using a term i i feel i feel like it's also they've been calling undermining not the seriousness of the problem but undermining the genuineness of of more of trumbull's response yeah that's right. yes that's that's what it was about it was about making taking the mickey out of this rule which he's not really addressing it wasn't like um trumbull put in place 
proper protections, uh, proper consequences. Like yeah. all he did, it's it's a. There's no register or anything of these incidences. I don't think there's incident reports or anything. You know, there's no proper HR protocol. It was just don't screw your secretary, basically. Yeah. So so calling it the bonk ban really highlights that it, it is a band a, yeah, that's right. It's it's a transparent top down. And we were never told what the consequences were of disobeying the bonk ban anyway. No. It was just a bit like don't have don't close your door and have sex in my house and you're like, okay. And then your mum goes out and you close the door. Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, no, that's no, no, Mr. Man. When you were saying before you know, there was un- it felt like it was potentially undermining the because su- the, the issue is much beyond who has sex with her. It's also you know, within those, the way those power dynamics are abused. But yeah, you're right. Like the, that, it, that the bonk, they're very bad. The conservatives are very bad at, at recognizing when something is, or, or maybe they're not very bad at, they're just good at pretending they don't understand when something is satirizing them and they, and pretending that in, that actually it's satirizing the victims of the thing that they're half, that, that their half-assed attempt to protect is half-assedly not protecting. And a bonk ban is such a such a only a liberal government could come up with something like the bonk ban because it is in essence a very liberal idea to basically say look this is what you shouldn't do but we're not going to in any way regulate it hopefully the market will just work itself out if if the other side had done it if labor had done it and done it on a you know put some structures in place if the, if it had been done properly and it genuinely was protecting People uh, in involved positions from being from from sort of the abuse of power that we saw, and, and we'll talk about in a sec that we saw in, in the, that was exposed in the Four Corners thing. If that had been done, the press gallery probably still would have called it a bonk ban. They would have picked out the element that was presenting preventing bonking, and they would have called it a bonk ban. And in that case, I w- I would see the ob- objection to the term because it would be demeaning what is actually a more substantive response. Mm. But I think that in this case. It's an appropriate thing to use um, because it's undermining because it's and, and it's what I mean. That's what conservatives hate more than anything: being laughed at, being their efforts being demeaned. Uh, did you, did you, okay, so yeah, so so Trumbull was. In fact, they, me calling him Trumbull is another thing. Like, why am I calling him Trumbull? His name's not Trumbull. His name is Turnbull. I'm calling him Trumbull because it was. Do you remember what you remember the Trumbull thing? Mm. I had a very cordial conversation with Prime Minister Trumbull. Somebody who, who you know, Australian conservatives suck up to, the, you know, a, a Republican president, um, and somebody who's as pompous as Turnbull. Those two things colliding, and him being known as Trumbull, I, I, I feel that there is, there is some, some appropriate irony in that, deflating, and so that's why, that's why I call him Trumbull. I do actually know his name, <laughs> but anyway. Um, yeah, so... Okay, so do, do you want to do you want to lead us through the four corners stuff because I think this is one where I should really shut up a lot more because I think you you've been in the press gallery in Canberra you've seen a lot more than I have. Four corners last Monday exposed some less than uh, family values stuff from these anti you know, pro traditional marriage anti marriage equality conservatives. Yes, it's always the the men who get on their high horse and moralise that <laughs> seem to have a less than less than um, ideal moral compass. So, yes, um, uh, Christian Porter and Alan Tudge, who were also opponents of the um, same-sex marriage bill, um, were sort of revealed by the program to have had 
um, a bit of an unsavoury past. Um, in Alan Tudge's case, the program um, was um, discussing an affair he had had with his staffer, uh, Rochelle Miller, for a number of years. Um, Alan Tudge is a married man and yeah, that's that's a straight-out-and-out and out affair. Well, the Tudge one is that it was a staffer who's now made a complaint about the um, actual... So this is not just consensual relationship between people. Um, apart from the power imbalance, which was to the extent where he was telling... He was wargaming with her... Uh, or making her war game, what she would do when she if she was questioned about it. Alan put a lot of pressure on me, and quote unquote asked me to war game. You know the lines that I was gonna I was gonna give the journalists to 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 try and kill the story. And so when I'd call it, it'd be all like, make sure you don't talk, make sure you get your lines straight, make sure you don't answer your phone. Actually, it'd just be better if you don't answer your phone at all. In her, in her account, there are a lot of very creepy sort of controlling aspects of it. But also, insofar as it was consensual, there are a whole lot of elements now that there is an actual complaint from her. It's not, it's, it's a much worse thing than, than just, you know, he had an affair with a, with a secretary or a staffer or whatever. It's, it's that it was quite coercive within, apparently, allegedly. Yeah, no, that's right. And then, and then it was, um, it, an exploration of Christian Porter's university days and um, his very unsavoury doesn't even, it's too soft, but uh, his, um, oh, fuck, I don't even know how to say it. Just the way that he talked about women when he was at university, it was just uh, pretty amazing for someone who, who really thought he was going to be a future leader. <laughs> and then um, allegations that he was canoodling with junior staffers at a um, bar in Canberra and, you know, there was the main issue with that that got raised was, oh, it could, you know, open him up to foreign interference claims, you know, so some Chinese spy that sees him canoodling with the junior staffer, they could blackmail him. That was the bigger concern then. Should you be trying to hook up with a junior staffer when you're a married man and they're working for you? Is that not a power imbalance and just out-and-out adultery? Well, I mean, I mean, it's a problem whether he's married or not, really. It's the power imbalance of the relationship, not whether he's betraying his wife's child. I mean, I don't know. We don't know. Maybe they had an open relationship. Who, who the hell knows? They're divorced now, so. Yes. Well, it's very open now. Yeah, and they, they, are the, they are the politicians who then parade their family around specifically to be like, look, I'm, I'm a good family man. I did see all the stuff on Twitter being like, how do they find the time? It's hard. Poly, it's hard being poly and finding the time for various partners and when they're also trying to conceal it and also be high-powered ministers like how do they and and the answer obviously is because they're not actually doing the parenting stuff they're leaving it to their wives it's basically about a whole lot of unpaid women's labor that's enabling them to do this otherwise you couldn't do it at all like where would they find the energy i yeah i don't even have enough time for my main partner most of the time to be honest yeah it's pretty amazing yeah. but yeah, look, the dog. Oh, we, we were Polly at one point, and we're not like with kids. How could you possibly? <laughs> Where is that energy coming from? Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. And look, yeah, the documentary was someone would say you know pretty explosive. Some would find that the documentary was a bit tabloid, but you know I think what is good is by getting the names of these two guys, and obviously the ABC had a lot more that they couldn't put to air because Australia's defamation laws are ridiculous and very bad. Um, which does mean that um, if the ABC makes these allegations, you can you can be pretty sure that there is more behind them, and that these ones are 
100% solid and Porter going, oh, I'm looking into defamation proceedings. Nothing's going to come from yeah, that. Yeah, it's like, like, did you? The ABC doesn't broadcast this stuff unless it has yeah. 100% been um, vetted very carefully now. But the good thing it is, it is getting people talking about the culture there, um, which, yeah, so I lived there for two years and I've written about it for Crikey. Is that... So I'd be very curious about the experience that you had in, like, you've, you've obviously seen a lot of this firsthand, although I'm suspecting not the Tudge and Porter stuff. Yeah, so I worked in Parliament House for two years as a journalist and, um, yeah, I wrote a piece for Crikey where I sort of talked about it being a bit of a horny alcoholic hotbed. Um, it's pretty boring at the moment because of COVID. A lot of the normal functions um, and booze-ups and free food and stuff isn't happening. Um, so I don't think I'd want to be there at the moment because um, <laughs> that is sort of fun. Nobody wants to be in Canberra if that, that other stuff isn't happening. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, look, I mean, people are working long hours and away from their partners. Um, not that that should be an excuse, but I think, yeah, people get a bit, bit lonely and a bit Maybe they have a bit to drink and they think they think they're gonna you know hit on hit on somebody. Um, and yeah, I, yeah, there was at least a, a time where I went to a, a bar at the end of the the marriage survey passing um, passing Parliament and same sex marriage being you know a thing that can be done. And a bunch of people got got drunk and were having a fun time at a bar. And um, yeah, a um, a staffer you know insisted that he walk me home and then insisted that he come up to my up to my apartment and then was sort of insisting that he hang around and I eventually sort of told him, all right, go home now. But if he was just a normal guy who was insisting all of those things, I would have probably told him no far earlier. But I did feel a bit of pressure because he was a staff to a senior minister and I thought, oh, well, if I tell him to piss off, I might not get to talk to his boss anymore. I hate this access thing. I hate this idea that yeah. journos have to keep politicians sweet or they won't get access. Like and, and it's kind of it's kind of almost a union scab type thing. Like you can't. The only way that to stop that would be isn't that like one of the hugest problems with the Canberra Press Gallery that, that people mm. have to have access rather than it simply being that all the journo's united say, and it's not our job to propagandise for you. You can talk to us on the record, and we will you know you, you can never get rid of the sort of favoured you know journos they'd prefer to speak to or whatever, but. Do you know what? Actually, I don't. I don't give a damn about drops. I don't, I don't care. And it's something that got. There is a press gallery sort of. There's a president, and at one stage there were people when I was there, um, really raising that we shouldn't accept drops anymore. Yeah. You know, the yeah. drops that go to some papers and not some papers that we should say no yeah. to it. And I think that's true. I think there needs to be more organisation against that kind of coordinated media use and it, or media. It's worthless anyway. Nobody. Any story that has any meaning is going across all the media anyway. It doesn't really matter who gets it first because it be spreads within... The whole culture of exclusives is just so fucking egotistical. I'm never a fan of it. It's just... And it's not exclusive, it's a drop. Yeah. In fact, you're Doing a anything, bloody press release. You're printing a press release. That's right. Exclusive... To me, as a consumer of the media, you know, I'm, I'm the audience they're supposedly giving a shit about, the word exclusive isn't a selling point. All it says is that you're you're in suite with the person, so you weren't actually doing your job and holding them to account for anything. Yeah, yeah. A real exclusive is actually like a scoop where you've actually investigated it and you're the only one that's got it. But I mean, even that word's stupid because it, it just might mean that you had more time and got your ducks in a row quicker. I don't mind. There's actual journalism, like the people who dig up the you know the, the war crimes, and we're not going to really go into that this week because yeah. there'll be more next week. But you know, the journos who do who, who who actually chase after power. But you can tell the difference between 
that exclusive or not, because one of them will be something that the people in power don't want you to hear. That's actual journalism. Yeah. And the other is what the people in power do want you to be propagating. That's not journalism. It has no value. And frankly, you know, like the fact that most of the front page of The Australian is that their little red exclusive tag, mm. all that means is you're just a, a you're just stenographers. You're just a, a government. You might as well just be the government gazette. Mm. It's worthless as a as a source of news. I mean, and that, their attitude would be, well, we're setting the agenda. And I suppose, obviously, that's the idea of the Australian. The Australian's not there to make a profit as a newspaper. It doesn't. It's there to you know, push, their, push the views of their mates. But why anybody who wants to be informed is buying the Australian God books? Yeah. I don't, it's, it's worth, anyway, yeah. So, look, as far as I'm concerned, any news outlet that refuses to do those, that's the one I'm more interested in subscribing to. That's yeah. those are the ones with journalists. I don't. I don't want that press release. I want the bit where the journalists have sent a bunch of questions, have actually pushed them at the, you know, mm. have, have, and you know, I want. I want the story. Even if the 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 politician in question won't answer those questions, that's the story. I want the trend. Yeah, I want the story in the paper being like, um, they're they're cutting it to fifty dollars a day. Um, we asked them this. He replied blah. So we followed up. But hang on, how are they supposed to live on that? The people, you know, there are people who can't find work. Mm. Do you not accept that there are people who can't find work? Mm. Like, do you know what the unemployment rate is? The number of jobs, as opposed to the number of people who want jobs. Are you? Are you? And the treasurer was banging on about who... job creation the other day, but it was less than ten percent of those jobs that were created were full time. Yeah, I, I love that the, the job market is the only one where we're uh, actually competing. Doesn't apply. Like they shouldn't have to compete for labour by producing, you know, by, by offering better conditions and wages. No, they should just be given the workers through some government scheme to subsidise them, or through, um, you know, the, the threat of starvation because the government has cut a hole in the safety net. Mm. Like there is no job that they can't fill if they offer wages and conditions that are appropriate. They could fill every single any employer who's like, I couldn't fill this job. I want to look at that job. Mm. Why, why couldn't you fill it? Because there's people who want the work. Mm. It, whether it was when social security and actually, was actually, you know, it was amazing. Um, there's always people banging on about no one wants to go and do farm work. No one wants to go picking. Only the only the backpackers want to pick. And they actually found a job agency had a bunch of just like fifteen hundred applications or something apply. Yeah, and none of them were accepted. No. It was that the 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 people who had the jobs weren't giving the jobs to people they didn't want to give it to. Yeah, well, because they also like they really like having um, workers who are on visas that they can much more easily exploit. Mm. Because if you've got a, a, a workforce on visas, they can't stand up for themselves. Mm. They, they just you can just get them get get them deported. They have to cop what you give them, which is the other reason why employment protections should apply to everyone regardless of citizenship status. This whole idea that you have a thing where, you know, do, do you have a, where you have to have a permit when you're here to whether you can work or not. Mm. And that's supposedly to protect Australian workers, but it doesn't because mm. what it does is creates a class of workers who are going to undercut you because they don't have any of the protections. Mm. Australian workers are much better off if that goes. Mm. You simply have anyone who's here can work and all of the protections apply. Yeah. You don't have different classes of workers. It doesn't protect any of us. The only person, people who benefit from that are employers who want to exploit workers. Mm. Madness. Anyway, the point is I've just, you know, we, we can clearly resolve this problem by, um, uh, I mean, sorry, we know what they need to do to resolve the problem, but getting them to do it. Um, 
Look, if, if you, you know, know any people who happen to be Prime Minister of the country, uh, could you get them to have a solid listen to what we're saying uh, in order to try and persuade them otherwise? In the no, meantime, wait, join your union. <laughs> that's right. But but, the, but not the unions who are fine with um, separate conditions for Australia, for citizen yes. workers and visa holds. Like, actually, you know what? Yeah, if you're involved in a union and, that, and unions are in favour of having separate conditions for visa holders, get in a position, work to change that mm. I, but yeah that, i think i think that's a problem that, that the unions themselves have been in favor of that stuff and it's really not in their members actual mm. interests to be pushing it i think that's it change from well don't change from within just lobby for better stuff just make some noise <laughs> yeah make noise like this podcast not so much as the uh howling because you've been uh, requested to have a nap which is in the background not that noise more this noise <laughs> Eliza, thank, that's probably probably where we should probably draw draw close to it because it's been a bit of a bumper episode. Um, where can, where can people find you? And there is a very specific place where people can find you and should, should go and look you up. You can find me on Twitter at verbalizer v e r b a l i z a, and uh, you can also read a lot of my work. Um, you can subscribe online, or if you're in South Australia, get a paper copy of Narrow Court News. Narracourt Community News, but that's at narracourtnews.com. Uh, and you can find us at Well May We Say on the Twitters. And uh, I'd like to thank our Patreon subscribers for keeping the podcast running. You are heroes. You're, you're basically heroes. <laughs> the, who, you know, in the same way as uh, apparently that terrible Polyconomy board game did in fact influence people. There's a um, there was when I was looking at into the Enterprise Australia thing. You know, there's a, a, a politician in uh, who was becoming a premier or a Principle or, um, darling, what you know the the Canadian states that are not states they're they're not called they're provinces provinces, you know how we have a premier of a state what what's it called in Canada? Premier. He's a premier. All right, so one of the premiers of like Saskatchewan Saskatchewan. I'm, I'm looking at a Canadian while I horribly pronounce Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan. Do 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 do. <laughs> do, do no, anyway. Yeah, he, he was apparently inspired by Paul Economy. He was uh, he was he was proudly talking about how when he was a teenager he would he would be playing that, and it really really sort of uh, clarified which people you were going to be friends with when you were, when your favourite board game as a teenager was Paul Economy. <laughs> anyway, so in the same way, my point is in the same way as uh, Paul Economy uh, promoted uh, far right Ayn Randian type ideas to future leaders of Canadian provinces, perhaps this very podcast. <laughs> Would be being listened to by, by particular teenagers, and uh, you know th th these ideas could propagate. And anyway, you what I'm saying is Patreon subscribers, you're how that happens. Thank you. That was a long, long walk to get to that, <laughs> to that point. I'm sorry. Well, it's been a long year, decade, whatever this year has been. How is yeah, it only yeah. November? <laughs> I just don't. I can't. I can't process it. Um, also, thank you, Robin Gray, for the music and Alex Lump for the artwork. In the meantime, everybody enjoy your uh, November, which will hopefully only last for a month. Now time is passing again. And we will see you all hopefully next week. Bye. Bye.